Welcome back, my friends. Today, we have a special guest who knows that growth happens only when we lean into the uncomfortable, and he knows this from personal experience. Todd went from being a struggling entrepreneur with $600,000 in debt into making it uh, into the Inc. 5,000 six times as one of America's fastest growing companies. Today, as a collaborative business advisor and CEO of Extraordinary Advisors, Todd helps his clients ditch the comfort zone, which I love, dive into their failures, which is another thing I love, and then reframe their mindset to be more authentic, transparent, vulnerable, and then to affect real change along the path to success. We have with us today, Todd Palmer. How's it going, Todd? Doing great. How are you? Very good. Todd, so you have a fantastic story. And of course, we're going to dig into that. And uh, first, right off the bat, you were $600,000 in debt. Does that include uh, mortgage debt? No, that was all business debt. And, all business. Um, it, it really, I think the, the, the debt was, was a byproduct of some, some decisions that I had made that didn't turn out to be so, uh, so wise, combined with um, uh, a version of imposter syndrome that I was suffering from when I thought as the CEO and leader of my company, I was going into my, my ninth year of being in business. So I thought I had all figured out, thought I had it really um, you know, kind of cast the die of success. Come to find out that a lot of factors that I didn't control impacted the business. We had two clients go bankrupt to the tune of almost $300,000 in debt, hmm. combined with some other decisions that I made. And that's really um, kind of the, that, that was kind of the, the lowest point in my professional career was you know, having, having that massive debt load. So that basically came, that debt load came from your customers going bankrupt, the customers that owed you the money? Partially, yeah, about half of it. And the other half of it was, was bad decisions that I was making. Um, I think when you start a co- I started the company when I was 27 years old. I was, you know, I started it for $15,000. And I didn't recognize that when I started the company, we were, it was the perfect economic framework for a staffing business. The company was diversified industrial staffing. And at the time, we were doing temporary help in an economy very similar to 2019, where there were more jobs than there were people. So if I could get the people, I could get them placed. And I created mm-hmm. a transportation arm. I would drive literally before there was Uber. I'd actually drive people to work, mm-hmm. make sure that the customer needs were satisfied. So by day 72, because we were hustling and bustling, we became profitable. Well, you had that early success. At least I had that early success. So I started thinking, well, I've got this all figured out. I, I hired a bunch of people. I opened a bunch of locations. And not realizing in 2006 that we were on the precipice of a nationwide recession here in the United States. Yes. So we knew it before most people knew it because hiring dried up. The clients that went bankrupt didn't tell us they were suffering and they weren't getting paid or they were having their issues. They stuck us with this massive debt load. I had put money out there that I could not recoup. And um, you know, essentially, the long story short is you know, $600,000 in debt. I was two months away from running out of all of my money including losing my house, not even taking into effect that that house still had a mortgage on it. And I walked in on September 9th of 2006, almost, uh, almost to the day of this recording, and fired my entire company and I started over. Wow. And that diversified industrial staffing. So that was, from what I saw online, that was pretty decent. I saw a lot of magazines had that, uh, your business featured in there. So you must have been doing, I guess, we were doing. Yeah, we were doing, yeah. yeah, we were doing decent volume. We were doing we were doing a lot of the right things, but the problem was, is we were also doing a lot of the wrong things. Mm-hmm. And 
I was very much, um, I had this mentality of, you know, the, the rugged individualist, the solo entrepreneur who's going to go conquer the mountain. And I, I didn't, it failed to realize that an entrepreneur alone, like I was, was massively an entrepreneur at risk. Yes, I, uh, I know. I know what it is. I've been there as well. And then when when the money starts coming in, it could be a thing of, I don't know if your case, it was age and you just start, I, I, it's the, I want this. And uh, I, I start digging into my own, uh, I guess, so-called profits. And yeah, there was <laughs> a lot of lessons there. Tons of lessons. And I think that's, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs, I, I'm so glad you brought that up because a lot of entrepreneurs think that they can run a checkbook business. I've got money in the account. It must be mine. Well, in my case, most of my money, 80% of my money, of a, of a, so if an invoice was a dollar, 80%, 80 cents of that dollar was allocated towards wages, towards government obligations and responsibilities, yeah. tax reporting entities, workers' comp insurance. So I, was, I had 20 cents. Well, if I was spending 21 cents of the 20 cents because I had to go buy this or I had to go do that, it, it's a formula for failure. But Because that's one of the things I work with my clients on now is t- top line is fine, but don't focus on your top line of your business. Focus on the bottom line of what falls to the bottom. How do you get more margin around the revenue that you have? Exactly. And that, that's something I love because revenue doesn't, uh, I hear a lot of people talking about the revenue. I see screenshots on Facebook and revenue means nothing, right? The profit is what really matters. How much money are you making at the end, right? Well, and I, I think so much of us get wrapped up, especially when we're younger is the top line is the big thing. You know, when I was, when I got into the staffing space, you know, it, you weren't really considered a, a successful staffing company until you reached about 20 million in revenue. What nobody really told me was only 4.3% of all businesses incorporated in the United States ever get a million dollars or more in revenue. Mm-hmm. So we're running eight, nine, 10 million in revenue thinking I'm half as successful as I should be, but by and large, compared to a lot of other companies, we were doing pretty well. Yes. So, and then after this, after you got out of that, uh, sorry, before we go there, did you end up going bankrupt or did you just, uh, you kept it? So I, I, lo- I love the question. So I didn't choose bankruptcy as an option, and it was a legal option that was available yeah. to me. And the main reason I didn't choose bankruptcy was I had hired a coach. I was like literally, like I said, I was out of money. I had one credit card left. I'm paying the guy on this credit card. And we took a look at the finances because I, I was not financially literate at the time. I didn't really know what I didn't know. Mm-hmm. So he's educating me, and he's telling me where we can make some changes. And he, he made the comment that you know bankruptcy is an option in your case. And that would give you a clean slate, start over. Um, and I'm sitting at dinner with my son at, at one night right before I was having to make some big decisions. And he was asking me very similar questions. He had a friend who he had told that my dad's business is doing really bad. And, and the friend's dad said, well, why don't you just file bankruptcy? And he and I had a really heart-to-heart conversation about that. And I said to him, I, said, I, I think I still have some options that don't involve bankruptcy. I think we can get, I think I can dig out of this. Again, blind faith. Yeah. Um, and I said to him, I said, you know, I, I always taught you to be a, a young man of your word. And that if you tell your teacher or your sports coach or your friends or whomever that you're going to do something, you should do it. And I want you to have honesty and I want you to have integrity in, in how you live your life. So the best way I think I can do that for you is to model that behavior. The bank has taken a lot of chances on me. I need to pay them back. I have vendors who aren't going to get paid. I need to pay them back. Or I need to essentially die trying. And that was really, so the, the reality was I could have totally filed bankruptcy, but because of the, the nine-year-old kids sitting across from me at the dinner table, I just couldn't do it. Yeah. And at that point, 
when you uh when you decide not to declare bankruptcy, I guess your phone, email, everything must have gone crazy daily with calls from people that didn't believe in you, of course, right? Oh, my friend, you have no idea. And and so but I'll tell you a quick story about that. I had to my banker was just beating me up on a daily basis. So it felt. So the story I told myself. Mm-hmm. They were frequently, you know, in my ear, when are you gonna pay this off? When are you gonna pay this off? When are you gonna pay us back? When are you gonna pay us back? Finally, I had to have a meeting with this this vice president of the bank and said to her, I said, listen, I, I, I can only handle so much criticism. And I am doing a really good job of kicking my own butt right now. I really don't need your help in that category. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you really think that you can run the company better than I can, you can have it. And I literally remember just slid the keys to the office across the desk. Here, it's yours. Take it. Uh, I, I'm, I'm literally done. I'm going to go file bankruptcy because I, I – I, I already feel bad enough. I have enough fear, self, self-criticism, self yeah. doubt going through my head. She gets up, she's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't, we don't want to run your business. I said, well, then you need to stop kicking my ass. Once you, I go, you need to stop, because I know I owe you the money, and I paid down, and I already paid down some of the debt. Mm-hmm. I, I can't pay you any faster. So this is what, and I said, so if you really want the business, take it. She says, no, we don't want it. I said, great. So I'll continue to run the business. And by the way, I need you to subordinate the debt. I need you to stop it. I need you to stop. The, the interest clock needs to stop running now because I'm never going to get out. And oh, by the way, I need another loan. <laughs> and, and, she gave, and she gave it to me because yeah. I, I don't know if it's because she, she was just as crazy as I was. I said, you know, subordinate this debt. And, and, and this, this will be essentially like pruning a tree. Cut off the dead branches. I, I got fresh organic growth and I showed her all the invoicing. I was very transparent in the financials. Yeah. I said, I got to satisfy this. and There's no one else who will work with me. Will you work with me? And so she created this funding program for me. And we ended up, I ended up paying off all the debt, not only to the bank, but to every one of my vendors, every penny, every dollar was paid in full. That's a funny story. Did they actually stop the interest on the, on the original loan? Yeah. They subordinated the original loan, set it over in, in one box and they gave me a new box to pull money out of. And but I, the reality was, you know, my kid and I were eking by. I got paid last. So everybody else got paid. The government got paid. The bank got paid. And if there was anything left, I got paid. Yeah. And, the, and, and a lot of entrepreneurs don't understand that when you go into business, you are essentially, in the beginning at least, you may, you may think you're going to build a company, but really what you've done is you've built yourself a freelance job. Yes. And, you get, and I was getting paid last. And the, what it forced me to do is it forced me to look at how to op- operate the business differently. I started hiring different people. We started going after different clients and we changed not only our hiring mechanisms, but our marketing mechanisms and how I ran the business with an open book management style that maybe if the bank had been a little less uh, agreeable, I may have had to do some different things, but it was, it was such an important opportunity for me to, to really lean into those uncomfortable moments, dealing with the bank and getting through those points. Cause I, you know, I had to come home and I had to feed my kid. Yeah. Maybe, uh, maybe there was a little bit of help there. The fact that up until I guess 2007, maybe 2008, anything that you would launch in Detroit pretty much could be a success, right? Up until that time, is that right? You know, it, it wasn't. Detroit's doing great today in 2019. Detroit's the, you know, I think it's, you know, if it's not the entrepreneurial capital of the world, it's one of them. Uh, in 2007, we were still very heavy automotive. Yeah. So now, but the the magic we had in 07. When we start, or in 1997, when we started, was the country was at full employment, but when when you know the unemployment rate in Michigan got up to double digits, yeah. So so I mean, imagine this: I'm trying to, to do a recruiting business, 
in a manufacturing space in Detroit, Michigan, when it's the hardest hit city in the economy during the recession. And somehow yet we made the 5,000 six times because I had to approach it differently. I had to pivot off of it. I had to focus on my, my intention of getting out of the debt and my intention of reinventing the business and subordinate the expectation of exactly how to do it. I had to go to the marketplace and find out what the marketplace needed so I could satisfy those obligations. And that's another impressive stat there. So getting into the Inc. 5,000 six times, this must be some sort of record, I'm guessing, not just yours, but maybe countrywide. Wide. Um, you know, it's, I've seen people who, at the time, we were the first company to do it. I've mm -hmm. seen other people who've got, got done well since uh, we did it. But yeah, it was, it was honestly pretty cool because I had a great team that was working with me. I, I created a process called Hire for DNA, Not for Resume where I was bringing a lot of people who'd never done recruiting into the recruiting business. Uh, most of them are still in the business to this day. And um, you know, I, I always thought it's just easier to take a really great human being and teach them to be a great recruiter versus getting someone with, with average recruiting skills maybe who didn't fit our culture mm -hmm. and trying to shoehorn them in. So that helped quite a bit. We found a inflection point with our business that allowed the sustainability for that six-year run where we found a, a gap in the marketplace where there was a, an increased demand for talent a diminished supply due to the baby boomers retiring. Mm -hmm. and if we could capture that sweet spot, we could essentially go from being a staffing company to a full-fledged recruiter agent and take these high-end CNC machinists, high-end welders, and rep them to the marketplace, reverse engineer the piece so that we were able to really get them more money than they could have ever gotten themselves because they didn't really know how to market themselves. Yeah. So we created this category that really didn't exist before we got there. Okay, and then... This, uh, in order to get six times into the 5,000, was this a competition uh, with yourself or was it a competition with somebody else or just simply a goal just to grow and grow? You know, it's, it, it was a competition really with ourselves. Yeah. So the way the ink calculator worked at that time, I'm not sure how it works now, is you had to have, you had to have revenue growth year over year over a three-year rolling period. So it was all revenue generated. So we, so for essentially for a decade, we were one of the fastest growing companies in the world because we had that revenue generation year over year over year over year. And I remember when we made it in, um, I think it was 2008 or 2009, we, we, had, we had grown, but we had barely grown. And I remember they got the call from the editor that we'd made it. And he's like, how did you do it in Detroit in the industrial staffing space when that's like a decimated area? And we had the same conversation we're having now. And I said, I go, I can't believe we made it. He goes, like, you'd be surprised at how many people who were on the list 10 years ago have gone out of business. He goes, be happy to be standing and surviving first and foremost. Yeah. And to thrive in, in, in looking at the landscape is, is truly remarkable. And now the, the business that you, that you run now, is it the same thing and you just renamed it or is Extraordinary Advisors something different? So I've retired from Diversified Industrial Staffing. It still exists today. I... I'm chairman. I don't work there. I don't, I, over, I oversee it from a distance. I've got a great staff that knows everything. Um, so no, Extraordinary Advisors is my, is my speaking and coaching business. And I spend a lot of my time working with entrepreneurs uh, around that imposter syndrome, working, getting them, you know, a buddy of mine says, basically what I do is I help entrepreneurs get their personal act together so that their company can go out into the marketplace and get things done. And I, I see a lot of people in the coaching space who maybe haven't had some of the experiences that I've had or run their own business. And I, you know, I spend so much time in the weeds with my entrepreneurs, getting them out of their own heads, getting them to, to realize that there's a lot more abundance than there is scarcity in this world. Let's go out and capture that abundance. 
So I want to ask you something that I've been thinking about the imposter syndrome. Yes. But is there a opposite of that? Because it seems to me that uh, sometimes I see exactly the opposite. The, the entrepreneur that started two days ago and now is a coach. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Is well, there such thing? You know, I, I, I think there's a different, there's a big, there's a big gap between confidence and arrogance. Mm -hmm. And I think any, so using your example, if someone uh, started a business, we'll give it two years ago and now they're coaching people. Um, unless they built that business and sold it and they've essentially retired, they haven't gone through a lot of the iterations that we go through being, you know, I was got 24 years of doing that. They, I mean, they're, you know, it, it's tough to go to a coach when they don't have that experience. So at an example, come up, client called me up, said, um, I'm in a pretty bad spot. I, I'm going to, I'm not going to make my payroll this week. I'm not going to pay any of my employees. I'm not going to get paid this week. And my wife is going to kill me and my employees are all going to quit. That's a, that's a level four crisis call. Yeah. I had been there. I understood. We gave him some tips and he actually was able to make payroll that week. And we were able to revamp some things. It, it's, there's one thing about reading about it in a book or going to university and becoming educated in entrepreneurship, walking that path and having stumbled and having fallen flat on your face like I have, and then getting back up with that resiliency, that's, that's acquired over time, and you can't accelerate that timeline. Exactly. I, uh, I knew a CEO um, years ago that he always used to tell me that it takes 20 years to have 20 years experience. Right. Well, it's, it's funny because I have people approach me to, to coach them and they'll say, you know, I said, this is how I work. This is what I charge. This is my program. And I say, well, you know, your programs, you know, it costs what it costs, but you know, I'm only paying for, you know, two hours a month or, you know, I have a concierge program where I'm available essentially 24 seven for people who, who want that kind of access to yeah. And I say, well, in, in that hour that you've got with me on the phone, you're getting 20, 24 years as an entrepreneur and 27 years in the human capital space. Um, maybe like, uh, you know, I'm going to sit down and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk quarterbacking with Tom Brady and Tom Brady's going to charge me $10,000 for that hour. Mm -hmm. Or I can go to the, the, the high school quarterback who may be great one day, but he's not Tom Brady. You, I mean, you, you kind of get what you pay for in the coaching space. And it's, you know, and I still use a coach. I use one of the world's leading neuroscientists from the, the West coast of the United States out in San Diego, because I, I need to keep learning. I'm a lifelong learner. I need to understand why I do what I do. And I understand, need to understand, you know, when a client makes a commitment to me and to their team and they don't follow through on it, how do I get them unstuck? Because that's, that's so common that I made a commitment. I'm going to honor my commitment. Quarter goes by. I still haven't done it yet. I'm like, well, what are you doing? I had, I've got to help them uncouple those, those thoughts in their heads so they can achieve the life they want to have. Exactly. And uh, I love learning as well. And this only happened a few years ago. And I bet you there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there that are like me because I had uh, in, in the niche that I'm in, I had, and I have many, many years of experience. And for the longest time, I didn't want to learn anymore because I didn't know anybody that was in the space longer than me. And then I ended up finding uh, that that was kind of a mistake because there are people that have been there half the time I have, but they have different experiences and some of them are a lot more successful than me. So I started learning again and it's so fascinating that you can learn with, uh, you know, people that, like I said, have been doing what I do for a lot less time than me, just doing it different. And 
is that something that how I learned that I learned that I guess by myself, but how can you tell an entrepreneur? How can you explain that to them that, you know, opening them to, to the learning curve, to love learning? Well, the first question I, and that's so funny you mentioned the learning piece of things. And that's one of the questions I ask when I'm vetting potential, potential people to coach is what's the last book you read? What's the, you give me the top three podcasts you listen to on a consistent basis. Um, you know, tell me what kind of movies do you like all these different, what, how do you learn? How do you absorb? Cause whether we like it or not, we're constantly getting data points. We're constantly yes. learning whether it's, it's, you know, little quick 30 second videos on Facebook, whether it's a podcast like yours or whether it's going to a four day seminar. I mean, we all learn. If I find someone has, has not, is not engaged with a learning mindset, it makes it very difficult to coach them. Yes. If, I, if I meet somebody who's, well, you know, I, I've always done it this way. Okay, well, have you hit bottom yet? And are you willing to change? Because if you're not, I can't help you. And the, the other challenge becomes when someone says, you know what, I, I'm an awesome entrepreneur. My team's terrible. So I need you to go coach them. That immediately tells me that the problem is at the top. Because by and large, whether it's your, your business, whether it's your, even, you know, you can take a look at your health. You know, we, we are the CEOs of our body. Mm-hmm. Or you can take a look at your family. Typically, the problem starts at the top. And if someone doesn't have that level of self-awareness, or if someone has more of that narcissistic tendency that it's always you, it's never me, they're, yeah. they're probably going to be uncoachable. But if someone's got a little bit of an inkling, if they say, well, you know, I haven't read any books in a while, what would you recommend I read? And I send them three articles. And then I follow up and say, give me the top three points you got out of each article. And they've actually read them. Then I think they've got some hope. But if they're not willing to put that time into to those simple assignments, then, then they're just going to be stuck. And there's not much anybody can do for them. I like that you have a vetting process and that's fantastic because you get to know a lot about the person before, I guess, before even knowing them, you know them and, uh, and it tells you if they're willing to learn. So that's well, it's so key because, so I use a, a program called colorcode.com and it tells me that there's four personalities with that. Mm-hmm. So it tells me the personality that I'm going to get, that I'm going to interact with. And I know my personality, I know, that my personality is going to see a certain certain circumstance a certain way, but your personality may see it differently. My job as a coach is to appeal to you. Uh, mm-hmm. I was really fortunate about 10 years ago, I spent some time with a, a baseball manager by the name of Jim Leland for the Detroit Tigers. And I, I thought I had the most brilliant question in the world I was going to ask him. So I'm thinking, you know, you're, you're dealing with 25 millionaires. Most of them are not college educated. A lot of them aren't even from the United States. And you've got to get them all, 25 guys going in one direction for a championship. So I said, Mr. Leland, uh, how do you how do you manage 25 millionaires to get them all going in the one direction? You're like, oh, that's easy. I'm like, I thought the skies were going to open up. It was going to come the 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 light of the light of the, uh, of God was going to show down upon me, and I was going to have the, the magical silver bullet answer. He goes, it's really easy. I manage 25 people one way, 25 different ways. My job is to get to know each one of my players individually. Thank you very much. And he just walks away. I'm like, wow. <laughs> I have to do that with my clients. As, as I coach them, I have to know how each one of their, their strengths and weaknesses, their highs and lows, because everybody's got them. I've got them. You've got them. Anybody listening today has you know, their strengths and their limitations. Well, yes. Let's focus on your strengths so I have to understand them. You're going to have limitations. Those are going to crop up. How do we deal with those? Do we outsource those? Do we give them to another member of your team? Do we eliminate them? Or do you have to deal with some of them so that you can get to the life by design you're seeking? That's my job as a coach to help navigate that 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 process 
Nice. Now, Todd, now that the $600,000 in debt is, is long gone, you, with your extraordinary advisors, you have done something that I read you were at a, a local prison teaching entrepreneurship. Is that correct? You know, it was actually a prison out in California okay. uh, through a program called Hustle 2.0, and they believe in second chances. Mm-hmm. And I mean, any, anybody who gets $600,000 out of debt to be on the Inc. 5,000 six times has had his more than fair share of second chances. Uh, so I know how blessed and lucky I am. And, you know, to go spend time with people who are, who are they call themselves mavericks, the people who are, are incarcerated, mm-hmm. to spend time with these mavericks and hearing their stories and hearing how they look at the world, not really much different than how entrepreneurs look at the world, was really powerful for me. And I was, I was so flat, fortunate I took my family with me. They got to interact with these, these people who we typically don't get to interact with yeah. and see them as people, see them as human beings. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them had really great entrepreneurial ideas. So to foster that, so that when they, they are released and back into the society, they're able to, to start their own business was so powerful because the, and here's how the, the program brought me in. There's a thing called a recidivision rate. And that's chance, I mean, really for, for anybody listening, the simple way to look at it is you're in prison today, you're, re, you're released tomorrow. Your chances mm-hmm. of returning to prison is, would be about 83%. Yeah. Pretty darn high. With this Hustle 2.0 program, it's so successful, their recidivision rate is only 7%. No way. I mean, it blew me away. As an entrepreneur, when I make data-driven decisions, but you know, they touched my heart too. I'm like, I, I, I have to go see how this all works. So yeah, that's, that's the program I did. I'm so, I'm so appreciative that you brought it up today. Yeah, no, I, I read that and I'm like, this is such an incredible idea because uh, I believe in second chances as well. Everybody uh, makes mistakes or sometimes desperation forces you to, to take certain uh, measures and you know um, try to provide to your family, whatever the case is, right? And I, I didn't know there was such a program and I was fascinated to, to read about it. So I didn't know about the stats though that from eighty three percent to seven. Is- oh, it's amazing! It's, it's just my it's mind boggling that that one that the chance of it, it's mind boggling to me as a as a taxpayer that eighty three percent of these people will probably return back. Exactly. I was you know and the ignorance I have is you know I don't know a lot of people who've been through the program who've been into prison and, and then released. So I you know I have, I have ignorance of lack of experience, but also belief in a system where it's supposed to be a rehabilitative system. Come to find out it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was very alarming to me. And I thought, you know, if I can just go and spend some time with these people and make a little bit of a difference, that's great. But just hearing their stories, you know, yeah, I went in there thinking how I could impact them. The reality is they've impacted me. And, and so I, I see it very, very differently than when I walked in. Yeah. Do you know if they, they kind of joined, they offer themselves up to the program they, have, they actually have to be vetted to be included in the program. They have to, it's like college. They have to apply. They have to go through steps yeah. to get included. They have work they need to do over a 20-module program that's, that's essentially endorsed by Baylor University out of Texas. So they end this program with a, a college-endorsed degree. Mm-hmm. So, so they have to put in a lot of work. They have to put in a lot of time. And the, the part that really blew me away was the, the people who are, are currently there who are, are, are lifers. They're, 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 they're in prison without a hope of parole who want to be included in this program. Because I'm mm-hmm. thinking, you know, I want to be in the program if I'm an incarcerated individual so that when I get out, I can have a different life. Exactly. Well, I'm someone who's there and I'm never going to get out and I still want to go through the program. Those guys were fascinating to talk to because they talked about how they could use their time left 
on earth while in, incarcerated to impact other prisoners so they can have better lives. It's such a selfless thing to hear. It, it, it just blew me away. That's amazing. Yeah, and I'm surprised how the government, if they know those stats, why aren't they doing more about it? Maybe having a funding funding part of this, you know, the entrepreneurship program and helping people like, get back into society when they're out instead of just being released and get putting back in. You know, it's it's really it's it's one of those interesting. If you're gonna, you, you should definitely re- reach out to Cat Hoke. She's a woman who runs that program. Yes. She she might be a great guest for your program. She can tell you more of those, the details of why the government does not do more, and how government is is interlocked with big business, in regards to how the system really runs. Once she shared that with with me, I'm like, all right, that that answers it all. So I think she, that's kind of a teaser for your audience that maybe if Cat comes on your program, she can outline that a little bit more because once you. Once I saw how the process really works and how big business is is tied in with government, and how these are essentially treated almost like hotels, mm-hmm. for, with a hotel mindset of of a um, it, it, it yeah it's just one of those situations where the more you know the more the more the more I knew I shouldn't say the more you know the more I knew the more appalled I became. Right. Yeah, so I'll definitely uh, get in touch with Cat uh, Hope, and uh, well, maybe we'll I'll get your your information from you off the air after. But that's yeah something fascinating because I always I, I knew that I didn't know the exact numbers, but I knew that the majority of the the imprisoned population when they get released after 10, 15, 20 years of being in there. Society has changed. Everything has changed, and they actually may feel better back where they were before because they have nothing to go to. You know, it's it's that's such a great point. There there is there is comfort in discomfort. Yes, and it's funny going back to imposter syndrome. A lot of entrepreneurs are very comfortable being uncomfortable because then when you are uncomfortable, you can say go to the family and say, you know, I got to put in a lot of hours, or I got to do this, or I gotta gotta gotta, because change is more uncomfortable than the discomfort you're currently experiencing. So I give these people, these mavericks, a lot of credit for willing to to work with entrepreneurs to lean into those uncomfortable conversations of telling us their stories of heartache and heartbreak and, you know, owning a lot of the the unfortunate choices and decisions they did make. They don't, they don't sugarcoat the reason they're in prison. They know why they're there. And for them to say, you know what, I am now choosing, I want to lead a different life while I'm here, and then hopefully when I when I'm released, that, that says so much about the the human spirit and how you know they're recognizing that you know I, I want I want different I want better. Absolutely, absolutely, Todd. So Todd, you also uh, the author of a book called the Job Search Process, right? That was a very did it ever, did it make it to bestseller? You know, it did not. Um, it was it's a book that I, I put put out basically. It, it was my reaction to how high school students and college students are ill-prepared to find their first job upon graduation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was interesting. I was on the board of a university, and I'm talking to the dean of the business school. And I said, you know, I, I don't understand. Some of the students I've interviewed from your program are not prepared to come to the workforce. They're degreed, and they're very nice people, but they, they're terrible interviews. They're just mm-hmm. not prepared. And he's like, well, the reality is – you as an employer think there we as an educating university are in the job readiness business. As a university, we're in the education business. My statement to him was I said, well, to the parents who are paying the tuition, 
you're in the job readiness business. So you have a massive disconnect with your marketplace. And so I was really fired up about that. And I sat down over about a 30 to 45 day period and wrote this book to teach people, teach kids how to find their first job. So it's on Amazon, it's on Barnes and Noble. It's, it's easy to find. And it's, it's a step-by-step guide to get a job within 30 days or less. I'll make sure to put that on the show notes. It's the job search process. Find and land a great job in six weeks or less. Correct. Okay. Yeah, I'll have that on the show notes so everybody can check it out. And I'll put the links in there. So you mentioned earlier that Detroit or maybe all Michigan now is out of the recession and uh, doing fantastic. But It really is. But not just auto industry now, right? It's entrepreneurship in general. So, so it's interesting. In, in downtown De- Detroit, um, there's a, a gentleman by the name of Dan Gilbert. He owns Quicken Loans. He's a very successful entrepreneur. He, mm-hmm. during, during Detroit's bankruptcy, he bought uh, upwards of 120 buildings down there wow. in downtown, in a major metropolitan downtown. And he's brought over 20,000 white-collar jobs there in less than five years. That's, what, that's a big reason why Detroit is on the rebound because we switched from being just heavy automotive, heavy manufacturing to a lot of white-collar jobs. A lot of kids from University of Michigan, a lot of kids from Michigan State who would go to school, local kids, but would leave to go work in New York City, go to work in Chicago, go to work in Los Angeles, go to work in Atlanta, have chosen now to stay home. Mm-hmm. So, we're, so we're, our, we're not having as many people leave the area because there are great jobs because of guys like Dan Gilbert and his team who put together this program. So – it's not just, again, the old days of Detroit. We still have manufacturing. We have all, but our, our demographic of employment opportunities has changed significantly over the last five years. And I think that's a huge reason why Detroit's thriving. Nice. As soon as you started talking about Dan Gilbert and uh, when he bought the buildings downtown Detroit, uh, I started smiling because at one point, I think maybe 2010, so everything was still really, really bad. Across the river from Detroit is Windsor, Ontario, so the Canadian side. And I went down there and I wanted to buy a, I believe it was 24,000 square foot building that was office space. And uh, on top there was a club and everything. And my idea was, it was, it was, uh, believe me, Todd, it was the deal of the century. And uh, I wanted that building. I wanted it really bad. I was going to do, fantastic things as soon as the economy came back up. Uh, then I learned after the, that, uh, yes, it had um, all these different offices, club, everything in there, but the people couldn't afford to pay the rent. So that was going to make my investment not so good because all the businesses wouldn't be able to pay rent for the next while. And I didn't I didn't get it, but yeah, Dan Gilbert had the, I guess he had the funds. I didn't, I couldn't just afford to wait a few years. Well, uh, I, I think the 60 minutes did a profile in Detroit and they talked a little bit about Gilbert. I think during that time he was at about 4 billion liquid. So he yeah. had a little bit more fun money to play with than most of us. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Guaranteed. Yeah. My building was, uh, well, not, not mine, but the one I was looking at, it was less than 400,000. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just, uh, it probably, I guarantee it was a good opportunity if I could maintain it until now and do the same thing on the Windsor side of things, right? Oh, sure. Fantastic. Todd, so now if people want to be able to, you know, get out of the comfort zone, because that's the only place where things are happening and embrace their failures, that's something you can help them with. 
and uh, extraordinary advisors. So where can they find extraordinary advisors and you if they want to reach you? Well, you know, the, the best place to catch up with me is on my website, extraordinaryadvisors.com. Mm-hmm. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to offer anybody who's listened to me today and has gotten value out of our conversation that I'd like to offer you 30 minutes of my time for free. Just write to me, say, hey, I'd like to get in your calendar and have a conversation about imposter syndrome, about growing your business, uh, about Detroit, you know, anything that would be attractive to you as, a, as an entrepreneur or someone looking to either start or grow your business. Mm-hmm. That's really the best place to catch up with me is on my website. The other thing I'm doing is I'm, I'm actually so funny that you mentioned Windsor. I'm really uh, I'm booking a lot of keynote speeches here in the United States. So if there's anybody in Canada who wants to have me come speak to your group, uh, I'm literally right across the river, and I, I love coming to Canada. I really enjoy the the people and the food and the atmosphere. It's so refreshing. So mm-hmm. by all means, uh, you know, I'm available to coach. I'm available to speak. But I'd love. But anybody wants 30 minutes. I literally have a call set up next with somebody across the ocean who would be on a different podcast. So I just love talking entrepreneurship. Amazing. So if people want to uh, claim the 30 minutes uh, for free with you, they go to extraordinaryadvisors.com and hit the contact form. That'd be great. Okay, perfect. Maybe let Todd know that you heard him on the Fail Fast podcast. And uh, just so we know where you came from. Absolutely. Yeah. Put in there that you heard me on Quinn's show and we'll, we'll get that information back to him so that he knows he's making an impact in his community. Exactly. And for all of you, if you are driving, running on the treadmill right now, I'll put this on the show notes and you'll be able to check this at a later date. Or actually, when you're listening to this, you'll be able to check it out at fellfastpodcast.com forward slash Todd Palmer. All right. Todd, thank you very much. And I hope people take you up on these 30 minutes for free because it's definitely going to be worth their time. Thank you so much for having me today. I enjoyed the conversation. It's a pleasure, Todd. Thank you. Thanks for subscribing to Fail Fast Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and visit failfastpodcast.com for show notes, Quinn's social media, or even to tell us your story.